As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Business of Sport podcast on The Athletic. Matt Slater joins us from Doha ahead of this Friday's World Cup draw, ahead of the start of the tournament in November. And the theme of today's podcast will be the criticism over the decision to stage the World Cup in Qatar because of concerns over the country's human rights record. Later on in the pod, we'll hear the thoughts of FIFA President Gianni Infantino on those concerns. We'll also get reaction from the organisation Human Rights Watch. The England captain, Harry Kane, says he wants to shine a light on issues around Qatar, but how effective is activism from players on off-field issues? Jonas Bear Hoffman is General Secretary of FIFPRO, the Global Football Players Union, and joins us now from Doha. So, Jonas, first of all, what, what have you been doing? Who have you been seeing and talking to in Doha? Well, we've had today um, a conference together with the International Trade Union of uh, Construction Workers, um, who we've been partnering with for for some years now to to work on the the migrant workers labor rights in the country and of course the overall human rights situation um so we've been attending some meetings here um and we've had meetings over the last few days with the um with some of the workers representatives the community leaders um from the different uh, international workers communities and um yeah we're, we're trying to um just amplify and, and support these efforts to keep pushing forward. Work remains to be done in, in many parts of the of the country. Um, maybe the conditions have improved over the last few years, especially when you look at the, you know, the Supreme Committee managed uh, construction sites off the stadia. The conditions there vary greatly um, from what happens in many other parts of the of the, the business environment here. Look, the clock's ticking. Um, the World Cup is getting closer and closer, and the, frankly, the workers on the ground have, have worries that once the attention fades, some of the advances and some of the remaining issues that need to be urgently addressed will not be and, um, and, uh, and may be lost. So that's why we've been trying to support. And the statement you released with that union today, what, what has that said? Well, what we're trying to work towards is that you know we've had very meaningful, and especially here in the region, meaningful legislative changes over the last few years. And what we've seen over the last few months when, when working with the unions here on the ground is that the, the practical application um, of these legislative advance, advances of labor rights um, is struggling. Um, broad parts of the business community are pushing back. 
Um, not all. Some of the big companies, you know, when you talk to the workers, their conditions are significantly better than they were. Um, but in many parts of the, the business sector, they're not. Um, so what we've been trying to work towards is essentially a structure that gives the workers agency um, for representation, for education, um, and for collective dialogue about their conditions. And, uh, you know, it's been framed around this idea of a, a migrant worker center um, or something of the sorts, because, of course, trade unions are not, not an option here, here yet. Um, and that's what we've been um, continuously working on with different stakeholders. To get to this point with this union, were you encouraged to do so by your own members? What, what has been the voice of the players you represent to get to this stage? Both, of course. I mean, one is that it's intrinsically relatively simple because, of course, as a, as a trade union, a lot of the issues that you know, the, the workers are here facing are, are not so substantially different from what we, you know, what we deal with. It's, you know, the right to organize and non-payment of wages and bad contracts and all of this. So, of course, this is for us a very obvious um, collaboration. And of course, we're embedded in the International Trade Union um, Confederation structure anyways. But yes, I mean, obviously, in, in different accelerations in different countries, but we've had dialogue over the last couple of years where we brought um, different groups of players together to to meet with and discuss with workers um, representatives here on the ground and the, these community leaders um, who are from the migrant workers community so that they can learn firsthand that they can get an understanding of the complexity of the situation the things that have improved the things that are still not sufficient and we've seen that quite a few players have a very genuine interest and of course the closer we now get to the tournament and the the greater the the public scrutiny um, and you know the number of questions that players will face gets the more of course we will we will try to accelerate that education pathway and to give them chances to engage directly and to to find their voice right because in the end every player will somehow determine themselves in which way and to what extent they want to engage with this and I think it's really important that the public don't under, underestimate the fact that not a single player had a say of where this tournament will be played or where any of the past tournaments have been played and yet the players are being the ones that are being criticized for playing here going here and all of this which is which is quite unfair to be honest but of course we those who want to use their platform and to speak out about the changes that they want to support to happen here um, we're trying to support them we educate them we give them the access to to the first-hand experience um, and um, you know, and, and just get them a way of engaging with this. And of course, we're through these ideas that I just described of migrant worker centers or other forms of, of, um, of agency to be given to the people here. The players are directly, um, hopefully able to contribute to some, some lasting changes that will go beyond the tournament. Again, I'm lumping all your members in together here. So I appreciate that there is a generalization <laughs> there. But do you sense in the main... Look, I, I work with a lot of ex-players now who are, who are pundits on, on television and radio. Sure. And I sense sometimes a, a frustration from them that they are being thrust into situations to talk about world events that they have no expertise in. So when you are putting your members together with, with these unions and talking to migrant workers, is there a sense that you as the executive can actually maybe help conditions and get something done but for your members you're trying to protect them a little bit so that they aren't thrown to the wolves in in interviews with people like me and matt well i, I think what's very important to that people also understand is that you know whether it's clubs federations whatever 
they're socializing players from the youngest of age to ideally be as apolitical as any human being could be so that, you know, they don't cause any what is perceived to be marketing trouble and might be conflicting with sponsors and all of this, right? And you now have a generation of players, which, you know, we've seen around various issues, who actually want to utilize their voice and who, who actually have understood how their platforms function and how they can actually maybe be better leaders around some of these issues than sporting executives and federation officials. Um, and so, yes, I mean, we, we want to give those the platform and the support to do so, but at the same time, yes, it is. Um, I think it's one very questionable why the players are the first ones to be challenged on this. When, like I said, it's federation officials who take these decisions, but also of course, you know, there is, is every sector of our society held to the same standard here? I mean, in various gov governments are currently making new energy agreements with the state of Qatar in the aftermath of the of the war started by Russia and Ukraine. And that doesn't mean that it's wrong to put pressure through football to have the social change, but then let's be consistent. Let's apply that same pressure to other sectors of industry and to you know elected officials who are supposedly representing our democratic interests. Let's then be consistent. And... Yes, sometimes it does feel like the players are somewhat scapegoated into um, into taking a stance that the broader system of, of sport is not willing to take historically. Jonas, it's, uh, it's Matt here. So one of the things that I I do hope to go to tonight and hopefully run into you at is a is a workers football tournament, right? Which I think mm -hmm. is going to be um, going to be staged at um, Al Jazeera, their 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 base here in Doha, and. You know, I've already received. You know, perfectly fine. I'm, I'm, I'm going to honour this, and I, I wouldn't dream of breaking this, this, this uh, request, not to film or take photographs of the workers, because the workers involved might have some sort of comeback. The first thing is when, when people say Qatar, I think like in any other country in the world, I think they need to understand that there is different forces and interests and and motivations. Right? I mean, there's there clearly is a progressive strand here that wants to create change and certain companies who've adopted these standards that were, were, sta were stated uh, mainly around the actual stadia. Um, but then there is of course a force that um, probably looks more critical upon that change. And um, a lot of the, the workers that we're engaging with are obviously the ones who um, activate their own time and efforts into helping colleagues and to, you know, give them assistance when they have problems and all of this. Um, so, you know, they that obviously in any environment, not just here, comes sometimes with retribution or, you know, employers at least not being happy about you. Um, and that is, of course, that's still a reality in, in, in some, some environments. And therefore, you know, some of them are not so keen to be portrayed as, you know, in the public as the... Um, the individuals who are driving that change from within their communities. And then I think that's a fact. That's not, not something that we would need to, um, you know, masquerade. Just going back to talk about your, your members frustration at being the, being the first ones asked about things when, when really other areas of life, you know, seem to seem to get away with it. I wouldn't say scot-free, but seem to have less focus on them than footballers already in this international break just gone people are asking you know gareth southgate for example about boycotts about protests what are you saying as a union to 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 global footballers about when they are asked about boycotting tournaments or protesting about tournaments is is there one line that, that you give them all number one i will not put um you know their 
their view into into my mouth. I mean, if they have a view on boycotting, not boycotting, they're free to say whatever they want. The the reality from what I've learned in now coming here numerous times over the last few years is that what people I think fail to understand is that the vast majority of the migrant workers will still be here in Qatar or will return to Qatar when the World Cup's over, right? And we're talking about a seven-figure um, number of people. And for many of them, and I think that's sometimes a problem also in how in especially European media, how these people are portrayed as, you know, a whole bunch of victims of a of an abusive system. A lot of these people take great agency in their life and are, are working very, very hard, harder than probably most of us can ever imagine to create, you know, growth and opportunity for the next generation of their families. Um, and they're very proud in what they're doing. And if the tournament would now be boycotted, number one, politically, I think that's um, virtually by now an impossibility. If you wanted to really have that conversation, it would have had to be six, seven, eight years ago. But you're not helping these workers by doing that, right? We, we may be satisfied an idea of, of what we feel is an unjust um, decision to, to give this tournament to this country. But if you care about the workers here on the ground and their improved conditions, a boycott won't help them. Um, and that's, of course, our point, first point of access to see how we can have sustainable, lasting changes, that these people have better jobs than they've had some years ago. And for that, it's much more important that we add weight and, and continued pressure before, during and after the World Cup, that the legislative changes that have been made, which are implemented in a very patchy way, become something that all workers here can utilize and that they're enforced and that the workers are educated about these, these rights that they have and that they have agency to, to build on this. That is actually what would create lasting change. A boycott right now, frankly, just doesn't help these people. I 100% agree with, with much of that. I really do. I think, I think you're right. I, I, I would push back slightly on one, one thing, though. I, I don't think the players have been scapegoated. I don't think until very, very recently the players have faced these questions. I think... Journalists, football administrators have, sponsors have, trade unions have, experts, academics. That's been the conversation for the last 11 and a half, 12 years. Footballers are coming in now, rightly Correct. so, and thank God. They're coming in now and they are going to be the part of the conversation, and this is just the nature of it, that people pay attention to the most. So sure. the, the 10 years of stories I've written have had almost no impact. <laughs> the next the next six months of conversation with players around these issues yeah. that's yeah. going to have impact now the only point i'm going to make is for all of those things that both of us want and i think nearly everyone listening to this podcast wants those positive changes the players have the most power they have proper this is all a big symbol this whole event is a massive big symbolic event the players have the most power and that is why I think the next six months are going to be really, really important. Next six, no, seven, eight, nine months, whatever it is. No, I, I look, I don't disagree with you on that at all. And I think the, the, the scapegoating remark was more in a broader context of, let's say, geopolitical events or other kinds of events that players are being asked to take a stance on, et cetera, in, in general, not just regarding this tournament. You know, when this decision was taken, that's actually an interesting exercise. Let's see how many players were already professional footballers when the tournament was awarded to Qatar <laughs> and when this dialogue started, who will actually play there, right? You won't find a whole lot of them. So this predates a lot of their, their experience, as a matter of fact. And it took us until 
two, three years ago, maybe that we've had the kind of international dialogue that we're now seeing, but also international means not completely global, right? That there is a completely different dialogue around this on the different continents and in different countries and how this is perceived. Um, and that's, of course, the environment in which the players also consume this information. Um, we very much encourage all the players and at the same time, we push back against administrators and coaches and whoever who try to silence players to speak on these issues. But at the same time, if you take any random group of, let's say, 100 people in the streets, not all 100 of them are going to be activists. Not all 100 of them will be comfortable to speak about geopolitical and quite sensitive international legal matters. And that also needs to be respected, that in this group, there will be some who want to be, those, be in those conversations. And then we need to give them the space to do so. But I think it's also absolutely fair that not everybody will want to do so. Speaking of being in those conversations, finally, Jonas, if you if you um, you you talked about uh, you know the majority of the people who are going to be playing in this tournament weren't certainly weren't professional footballers when this tournament was given to to Qatar. The majority of them. Do you feel that as an organization and as a union, you are closer to the decisions being made right at the start like if infantino decides he wants to do a biennial world you know a biennial world cup do you have a seat at that table to tell him your your members don't want that yes but the seat probably doesn't have the weight that i would think the players deserve it to have there's a reality that the the international governance system of sport um stands a few steps behind especially in our space when you talk about professional football what are the standards in the in the most developed domestic environments, right? I mean, the the right of unions to negotiate labor conditions is a fact in 30, 40 football markets domestically, and the structures allow for that, and they've been adopted to, adapted to do that. Internationally, that's still a struggle, and not just on FIFA level, but I mean, confederation level is is oftentimes actually worse. Um, not just Europe, but in generally speaking, is oftentimes worse. And I don't think that that'll sustain itself a whole lot longer because the same reality that we're facing, even an entity like the Premier League faces, when FIFA goes out and, and goes for a decision on a two-year World Cup, it goes to a council where neither the Premier League or the PFA have a seat. I'm not even sure that having a seat in there is the right mechanism. What's the right mechanism is that when you talk about issues that fundamentally affect the employment conditions between clubs and players and the business constructs of domestic leagues which are still the bread and butter of the professional game then these people need to have balanced co-decision making powers together with of course the the federations and in balance with the, the national team game which is something we'll always protect because it's one of the greatest things for a player to experience to represent their country the structures need changing and i think we've seen over the last few years that the the ineffectiveness of these structures just leads to constant conflict and bickering and proposals that are being shredded in the press and no consistent dialogue and and maybe worst of all the decisions that actually need to be taken for the sustainability and the development of the game don't get taken because we're all consumed with rejecting things and you know pushing power plays back and forth and that's just not gonna sustain itself i think for very long um when you look at questions around the development of women's football, when you look at questions around the calendar design, when you look at amendments to the transfer system, when you look at, you know, all of these things, we've not been able to make the kind of progress that we could if we had a bit more of a, of a balanced and an objective decision-making structure. Thank you very much for coming on this afternoon. Appreciate it. I know you're obviously very busy, but uh, thanks for giving us your time.
That's all right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Ahead of the draw, FIFA President Gianni Infantino spoke today to AP Sports on human rights issues in Qatar. Well, I think that um, what has been done already is uh, is you know, really groundbreaking. Uh, in a very short time, the progress in terms of human rights, of uh, workers' rights in particular, has been uh, uh, has been incredible, and this needs to be recognized. Uh, critics were there; I was one of those uh, uh, as well, criticizing when I was elected FIFA president. One of my first trips was to come to Qatar and address exactly this issue that was in 2016. Since then. The kafala system has been abolished, minimum wages for workers have been introduced, Uh, regulations have been put in place to protect the health of workers from the heat uh, situations, which obviously is an issue in the summer in uh, in Qatar. There were some issues. We have been able to help uh, a little bit addressing them. They have been addressed. Everyone will be welcomed. Everyone will see that everyone is welcomed here in Qatar. Even if we speak about LGBTQ+, if we speak about, uh, again, workers, about people from everywhere in the world, if you have a ticket, you will have your visa, which is your uh, Haya card, kind of a fan ID. You will be able to enter the country. You will be able to celebrate. Well, let's get reaction to what FIFA President Gianni Infantino said. We can uh, bring in Wenzel Mikalski, a director at Human Rights Watch. What are your thoughts on Infantino's words, Wenzel? That's ridiculous. They are not groundbreaking. There have been some improvements, like um, 
the abolishment of uh, the kafala system or the introduction of uh, minimum wage, for example. Uh, but we have seen this mainly on paper, but not actually implemented. Everybody involved in this feels very conflicted within the sport, not from a huge, like within the sport, where a decision has been made that none of us have any effect over. Players, journalists, media, to a certain extent, this is this is the decision. The tournament is being played here. I know your organisation, Human Rights Watch, has released 10 questions that everybody should be asking ahead of this tournament. And the basis of those 10 questions, the general gist is what, Wenzel? The decision has uh, to, to grant the World Cup to Qatar is 10 years old. So FIFA, the Qataris, they had 10 years time and very little has happened. And as I said before, yes, we see reforms, but they're mainly on paper. We don't see them de facto real, in real life on the ground. And um, these questions are actually addressing um, this, these problems. So, for example, uh, why does FIFA continue to praise Qatar's reform? I can really recommend these 10 questions are on our website for journalists to read them and ask them when they have when they do interviews with FIFA representatives or FA representatives or Qatari um, government um, figures. But it's also very interesting for every football fan or for everybody who is interested in, in human rights in general because they are questions that are based in real life. This is happening at the moment in Qatar as we speak and as people like the government of Qatar or the president of uh, FIFA want to gloss over it. They want to sports wash the situation in Qatar. Women are still not free. This is happening in a country that looks from the outside very modern, very shiny palaces in Doha, the most modern football stadiums in the world. They are a great soft power now with negotiations between the US and the Taliban and, um, and so on and so forth. But if you look behind the scenes, behind the curtain, you see all the human rights abuses that you sadly see all over the region. And so I'm in one of those shiny palaces right now. I'm in the conference center where the Congress will be held tomorrow, held tomorrow, FIFA Congress will be held tomorrow and the draw for the World Cup on Friday. Um, I like your questions. I will continue to ask them. You have my word. FIFA aren't on this particular Zoom call. I'm going to play devil's advocate for a while. I'm going to, I'm going to suggest to you that progress has been made. Okay, from a low bar. But is it not true that the, the lot of a migrant worker in Doha is at least slightly better today than it was in 2010, December 2010? No, it's not true, unfortunately. <laughs> I wish I could say, yes, that happened. No, what we see is probably improvements for this 1.5% migrant workers who work directly at the World Cup construction sites. That means where the spotlight of the world is, where people are looking at. But even there, and as I said before, we have um, discovered um, abuses there as well, as recently as this month. I mean, I know, talking about my own country, 
we've made mistakes along the way. You know, the the, the towns and cities. I mean, I, I I don't live too far from Mark. Our cities were built by the working classes who were abused over two, three, four hundred years. Manchester was a pretty grim place not that long ago. Who are we in the West to tell Qatar or UAE or Saudi Arabia how to build their cities, how to diversify their economies, how to project themselves onto the world? That's right. I mean, we as the West or we in the West have no right at all to say something like this. And of course, there are human rights abuses also today in countries like Germany or the UK. Uh, plenty of them. But that's not an excuse to raise human rights issues. And then you don't talk as a person from the West. Human rights are universal. They're for everybody. Whether you are in Qatar, in Nepal, in, in Manchester, in Brazil, it doesn't matter. So that's where we come from. We're not, coming, we're not speaking as a Western organization. We're plenty of people who don't come from Western countries in our organization. And so, no, this is an argument that also wants to find a justification why one should not raise human rights abuses all over the world. And one, one bit is Qatar. Um, I hear this a lot from football association presidents. And so they say, oh, yeah, nothing is great. I mean, only in 1972, women in Switzerland got their right to vote. Yeah, terrible. That is terrible. It's not an excuse uh, that the human rights abuses still are happening in such a huge, massive scale in a country like Qatar. How do you re respond to those that go taking World Cups, Olympics, whatever it may be, to countries where you can highlight human rights abuses shines a light on the problem? It shines a light on the problem. The problem is that the problem then doesn't disappear. It doesn't go away. We have seen that for 10 years, the, the, the light was shining on Qatar. Everybody was looking at the Winter Olympics. Everybody was looking at China. That does not change things. If the authority, if the governments don't want to change anything, they probably feel it a little bit annoying that at the moment everybody's criticizing us for our human rights abuses. But that's it. Their, their gain, the glamour, the money, um, the reputation they hope they would get from this is much bigger and greater than criticism. And that's why we um, accuse of FIFA of being complicit in the human rights abuses, their obligation is, according to the United Nations, there are guidelines, their obligation is to avoid any human rights abuses within their own realm, within their own, own activities. And they haven't done it, they haven't said anything. So at least now they should pay some reparations and remedy for the families of those people who have died working on the World Cup stadiums, which brings so much money for FIFA, billions. And they haven't done it yet. So we have to ask them to do it. It's their obligation, their United Nations obligation to pay at least reparations to the families. A final question, and I, and I definitely don't mean this in a, in a flippant way or in a, in a smart way or a clever way, 
But given it, given that we've all discussed, you know, every country has its issues, every country has its problems, every country has its business deals that we might raise our eyebrows at and think that looks a little bit dubious. Probably every country. Where do we host World Cups and Olympics and and tournaments? going forward there are definitely different levels of abuses or systematic abuses and also it's um it's a question is are there any authorities or bodies in a country that deals with this abuses reparations remedy accountability where do we have mechanisms in place that can prevent those human rights abuses or actually then hold people accountable. If that doesn't exist in a country, it should be impossible to then provide these countries with such a huge propaganda tool and opportunity like a mega sports event. Benzel, thank you very much for joining us. Fascinating to talk to you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Let's just end the pod then with your experiences, Matt, so far in Doha and, and how you are finding it? Well, um, it's my second visit. I came about oh, the end of 2019 and it hasn't changed that much. The Metro's finished. Um, one of the more eye-catching stadiums has finished and that's the one that sort of looks like it's been made of sea containers. It's the demountable one. It's the one that's going to, I think, going to, going to attract a lot of attention this week because it is sort of part of that story that Qatar wants to tell, that it's being smart and it's clever and that this is not going to produce white elephants and they are thinking about legacy. So I, I expect we're going to get a lot of, I know there was an organised trip, for example, today to that. And it's one of the, it's pretty much the first stadium you see as you come out of the airport, as you, as you sort of drive from the airport to downtown, which is pretty much Qatar. That's it. You know, it, 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 it's a city. It really is. They've created sort of a, a new city, a new suburb called Sale, But we really are talking about a very small place. And I think my ref, what I've experienced so far today, really, is exactly what I experienced back in 2019, that this is the most remarkable, and I don't really mean in a good way, place to stage a World Cup. The people are friendly. They have worked incredibly hard, as we have just been hearing. Uh, a lot of thoughts has gone into this. There are some good people. I have met lots of good people, more on the last trip than this trip so far, who do care about workers. And I believe them. I don't know how much power they have. That's the issue. But they certainly care. Um, and I know I meet people all the time at FIFA and the IOC and all these other international federations that genuinely believe that thing about sport shining a light and it's, it's good to engage and... Um, we have to go to these places we can help. Sport can help. It can be a catalyst. Now, look, is that, is that true? Is that actually borne out by any evidence and not just here, but umpteen other examples? Very debatable, but they believe it. And I believe that they believe it. But it, what I keep coming back to with Qatar and nothing I've seen in either of my visits has changed my mind, that a country this small, this poorly prepared, a country that was always going to have to rely on a massive migrant worker population to rapidly build infrastructure that it very probably doesn't need all these stadiums, eight lane highways going where this Metro that I've 
it's like a sort of it, it's fantastic it's, it's like a toy metro there's no one on it you know what's it all for did it did it did it need the world cup and through all of this i'm guessing already from from what you've described as some of your experiences the controls of what you're being allowed to see and being allowed to experience which we all have when when covering a fair few of these tournaments in recent years. Yeah, I was a bit surprised about this because on my last visit, I thought that everyone I needed to talk to spoke to me. And I, and I actually went to a, 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 a migrant workers camp. Obviously, look, you know, they chose the best one. And I was taken there by, by handlers from the Supreme Committee who are the organisers of the World Cup. But they didn't, I didn't feel like I was being kind of mani- too obviously manipulated. I got to speak to people. I spent a lot of time on my own talking to taxi drivers. I mean, I, I, wherever I go, I talk to taxi drivers. And I, and I heard some of that story that, that Jonas was talking about. Engage people, people that came here, chose to come here and are sending money home and are proud to be here and are proud to be what, doing what they're doing. I went to a football game. I, I walked through the city on my own last, last time. I met, you know, I met loads of people. It's a, it's a complicated story. It's, it, the developing world is a complicated story. Mm. But Qatar chose to stage a mega event and it wasn't ready for it. And to stage it, it has had to massively accelerate its, its national plan. And that has had huge implications for lots of people. Thank you, Matt. See you soon. No problem. Uh, right, that's it. You can subscribe to The Athletic for just a pound a month for the first six months. Go to theathletic.com slash football pod. Thanks for listening. The Athletic.